Amen, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you guys here. Welcome to church. And my name is Josh. I'm the preaching pastor and the lead pastor here at Living Waters. Great to see all of you guys here this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, open it up to Matthew 17. So Matthew 17 is where we're going to be. This morning, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. And as we get ready to read the Word, um, I'm just going to um, yeah, introduce like what we're doing and where we're going this morning. We had a car accident at 8.30. You guys know that? Some of you have heard that already. So we had a, a young girl come into church, actually, come up this little hill right up here, take a left, which is kind of a blind left at times, and she got hit right before service. So that's Cassie Henderson. We're going to pray for her and her family. Uh, luckily, Living Waters people were also trying to come to church at that time, so it was right before service. You can imagine a teenage girl trying to come to church, do a good thing, and then all of a sudden we're getting hit, our car is spinning, we're doing insurance claims, all those things outside. Scott and Veronica would be Cassie's mom and dad. So we're going to pray for them and, uh, and just pray that everything's okay with them. And all you teenage girl drivers this morning, pay attention, all right? Be careful on the roads. We love you. We want you around for a very long time. Parents, amen? Okay. Uh, we also are getting ready for Easter, and so um, we're, we're getting excited for Easter. It's just a couple weeks away now, so I just want to um, get a quick prayer said, and then we got a little video we want to show you, kind of get you in the spirit and the feeling of Easter. Uh, we're going to do this this week and next week, just to get you in a sense of we're getting close um, to Easter Resurrection Sunday. So let's pray uh, over the word. Let's pray for Cassie. And let's pray for the Hendersons. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to worship you, to bring our hearts before you. Lord, we pause right now and we bring our brains and our hearts to your throne. Lord, there's no one that we need more in our lives than you. We need you in our lives. We are not smart enough. We are too proud. We are too arrogant. We are too deceptive to really know all of the depths of our need, but God, we freely acknowledge right now that we need your, your grace. We need your presence this morning. So God, speak to us through your word in Matthew 17. May the word come alive and cause Christians to really grow in grace. We pray also for people who don't know Jesus yet, that this would be a morning where things really, really get clear and click in their minds. And Lord, we do pray for Cassie Henderson. Lord, we just pray that your richest grace upon her this morning and no doubt traumatized from a car accident right before church. We pray for Scott and Veronica and the family. We thank you for amazing grace that no one is hurt and we thank you, God, that everybody's safe. Pray for all the insurance claims and all the different processes they're going to have to go through. We just pray that that would be as painless as possible. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you're at work in protecting us. So Lord, we, we thank you that you give us life and breath. You give us the breath to keep breathing. You give us the brains to keep thinking. You give us the ability to keep moving. And Lord, we give you great, great praise for that. God, get us ready for Easter. Get us ready for this text this morning, the transfiguration and the power of this scene in Matthew 17. Get us ready. Get our hearts ready in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've got a little Easter video I want to show you. 
Yes, Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead, and that day, that Easter Sunday morning, that first Easter, when Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome went to the grave expecting to anoint a dead body, they saw the angel sitting there. And they said, where is Jesus? The angel said, he is not here, he is risen. I submit to you tonight that that's the greatest news the world has ever heard. He is not here. He has conquered the grave. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Yeah, Easter's exciting. It's coming up. Hopefully you're inviting friends. Hopefully you're bringing people here to hear the gospel. And hopefully you are rejoicing in that same truth as well. Matthew 17, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. And then we're going to dig into the text and let God speak to us. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's really good that we're here. I, I wish I could make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And the disciples said to him, then, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And when the disciples understood they, that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Praise God for the reading and hearing of his word. This morning's sermon is entitled, Glorious King. Now, this is the transfiguration account. And some of you have heard of this story a hundred times. There might be a few of you that have heard of this story for the very first time this morning. This is the story of Jesus transfiguring himself in front of Peter and James and John. Now, the cross is very much on Jesus' mind here. Now, there are two other passages, Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 9, that tell us about this account. So this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them with little different flavors, you know. Mark's going to bring out some things that Luke doesn't. Luke's going to bring out some things that Matthew doesn't. We'll refer to those uh, throughout the message. But the cross is very much on Jesus' mind. He's thinking about the cross almost all the time now. And if you remember my message from last week, I said the feeding of the 5,000 was the last public miracle that Jesus was, really did. And then he pulled out of the public scene. 
He had the walking on water, but most of his time is now spent with his disciples and in private. And this is certainly a private scene. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John north to Mount Hermon to show them his glory. He was transfigured before them at the seat of Mount Hermon. Now, the word transfigured, some of you might be saying, what in the world is transfigured? What does that even mean? Well, the word means metamorphosis. So if you think of like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, right? And for those of you parents who have the Very Hungry Caterpillar book at home, or you've read it in the past, you know what I'm talking about. The caterpillar, what it does is it metamorphosizes. It comes in, it eats leaves, and then it builds a cocoon. And what happens in that cocoon is that out comes a butterfly, a transformation, a metamorphosis takes place. And that's the same word here. So literally, a a metamorphosis is a change on the outside that comes from a change on the inside. Or a change that comes on the outside that reveals, maybe that's a better way to say it, it reveals what is already inside. So when Jesus transfigures before the disciples, literally heavenly glory comes out from his insides. Literally out of his soul comes this ability to have his skin shine like the sun. And literally his clothes go from normal to bright white. This is a freak out moment for the disciples. Can I get an amen? This is a scary, scary moment. Because they've never seen this side of Jesus. And this is really important. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is radiating the glory of God. It's coming not as a reflection of some other thing. It's coming from inside of him. Which means that Jesus has had a deity inside of him the entire time. When he came from heaven to earth, he had deity inside of him. And literally, it shows his humility that he took on flesh. Now, the transfiguration is a moment where the disciples get to see this glorious, heavenly, amazing light that comes out of Jesus. John MacArthur, the the pastor in California, he says this. He says that the transfiguration is a preview of, of the second coming for the, for, the, for the apostles. Like it was a good preview of what's going to happen when Christ returns. And so the transfiguration happens and, and this has a huge impact. It woke these disciples up. Woke them up. And I mean, I mean literally it woke them up. Luke chapter 9 verse 32 tells us that they woke up from sleep to find Jesus glowing like the sun. All right? Now, It's bad to fall asleep at a prayer meeting. It's bad to fall asleep at a prayer meeting where Jesus is praying. But that's exactly what happened in Luke chapter 9. It says Jesus was praying to the Father and he starts glowing. He starts radiating God's glory. His clothes start going white. What are the disciples doing? Yeah, they're snoozing. Yeah, they're snoozing. So for those of you who have all fell asleep at a prayer meeting, say amen, right? Right? You are not unlike the disciples. You are like the disciples. We're all in the same boat here. We've all fallen asleep while somebody else is praying. But none of us besides the disciples have woken up to a glowing man. Right? That's never happened. 
These men woke up and literally this scene in front of them is Jesus Christ in glory and they are impacted by this from that day to the rest of their life. The Bible tells us this. John says it in John chapter 1. He said, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. John was right there. We saw the glory of Christ. And it was like glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Peter, much later in his life, reflects back on this um, transfiguration scene. And he says this in 2 Peter 1. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. We saw it. So Jesus' glorious transfiguration, what it does is it wakes people up. It wakes groups of people up. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples, but also... There were other groups as well. And that's the heart of where we're going this morning is that the transfiguration of Christ not only wakes up ancient believers who lived long ago, it wakes us up too. Amen? Better wake us up. Because this is our Savior. If we know Christ, this is our Savior. This is our King. And it should wake us up. Now, here's why it's important. Our spiritual tendency is to fall asleep, spiritually speaking. Can I get a witness? Right? Our sin problem is that we become lazy and we become indifferent. We become indifferent to Jesus. We are sinners, which automatically puts us in a sinful danger to take Jesus for granted. Right? We could almost like Netflix more than we like Jesus. We could almost like social media more than we like Jesus. We could almost value politics more than we value Jesus. We could almost... Put a lot of things in front of Jesus. We have this ability inside of us to drift all the time. So therefore, the, the transfiguration jolts us awake into, you know what? I, maybe I wasn't reading the word. Maybe I wasn't praying. Maybe I was minimizing my sin. Maybe I was falling in love with this present world. Maybe I was, you know, just getting into a bad place and all of a sudden, boom, the transfiguration shows up. Jesus in his glory and we're like, Oh, that was really good, right? That's what we need. So the question that we're going to answer this morning is, who did Jesus wake up? Who did Jesus wake up in his transfiguration? Because certainly the disciples woke up, but there are more groups that also woke up during this transfiguration scene. The first group to wake up was the spirit world. In verses 1 through 3, the spirit world. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. They go up to this high mountain, and he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like sun, and his clothes became white as light, and then appeared to them Moses and Elijah. You have a very spiritual scene here. I mean, this is a very spirit world kind of scene. He led him up to a high mountain. Now that phrase might not mean anything to you, but that is a massively important phrase in this text. They're going up to a high mountain. Now which mountain is this? This is Mount Hermon. Okay, Mount Hermon. I think I have a picture of this for you. Traditionally, Mount Hermon, this is just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're thinking geographically, this is north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus hung out a lot. And you can see Mount Hermon is 8,500 feet in the air, right? That's the max height of this mountain. And if you look up, if you Google Mount Hermon today, you will see that this is like a ski 
resort for Israel. Like if you're going skiing, this is the Rocky Mountains of Israel. This is where they go and they ski. You can see it's snow-capped. It's high. This is where Jesus went with Peter, James, and John. This is where he went. And they landed at Mount Hermon. Now, this is an important mountain, not just because you can ski on it. This is an important mountain biblically because this is the site that most scholars believe tremendous amounts of sin happened in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, all right, this is some of the, the sons of God and the daughters of men seen. This happens in Genesis 6. Tremendous evil happens right here on Mount Hermon. And here's what the text says in Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they were children to them. And then there were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This happened at Mount Hermon. All of the sons of God, daughters of men stuff. This is very spiritual stuff that was going on. This is very deep. I don't have enough hours to preach to you about all of what's going on in Genesis 6. But here's what I'm telling you. This was the site of tremendous evil. These are demons. These are spirit beings. These are possessed humans. These are, there's a lot of weird, nasty, dark, evil things happening in Genesis 6. And it gets so bad, right? So bad in Genesis 6 that Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord to build an ark. Because the sin gets so out of control and, and the human imagination gets so wicked and so evil that this is what happened at Mount Hermon, okay? So when Jesus goes to Mount Hermon, this is an amazing reality. He is coming to one of the most historically evil sites in all of the Bible. Where demons and spiritual beings of evil are. And he shows up and he transfigures in the very place where sin was so rampant and abounding. And he transfigures and shows his glory and he wakes up the spiritual realm because all the chatter going on during that day was that oh there's still that's a demonically possessed place you don't go to mount Hermon. don't hang out there that's where all the evil has taken place all in the past don't go there now you know there's rumors not that our culture knows anything about scary movies with spirits hovering around houses or anything right but certainly that would have been the scuttlebutt during Jesus' day. And Jesus goes there and he is transfigured in front of that very place, waking up the spiritual demons and forces of darkness. And he's basically saying, y'all better get ready because I am going to win. Amen? That's what he's doing. Now, Michael Heiser, who's a Hebrew scholar, and I've, I've read his book, The Unseen Realm. This is what he says about this text. He says, Jesus is saying, I'm putting down the hostile powers of the unseen World, and I'm putting them on notice. I've come to, to the earth to take back what is mine. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So he has given a warning shot to all the spiritual forces of darkness to say, y'all better get ready because the cross and the resurrection are going to devastate you and I am going to get my victory through the gospel, not only here, but all over the earth. And we give an American amen to that, right? Jesus was letting the spirit world know, I'm coming to claim the victory. You've been warned. This connects us to Ephesians chapter 1. Where in Ephesians 1, we are told Jesus will be far above all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You're a Christian in America in 2022. I'm guessing you haven't had too many thoughts about the spiritual realm this week. Probably not. Some of you maybe have thought, man, it's a little heavier this week. I feel a little bit more challenged this week. But not many of you have made the connection to the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work in heavenly realms. And the reality is that our Jesus has won the victory over all of those places. And that's what he's telling them. He's waking up the spiritual world. Now, what about Moses and Elijah? They show up. Moses and Elijah show up. In their spirit forms, we have Moses on one side, Elijah on the other, and they're talking with Jesus. Again, if you're Peter, James, and John, and you thought you weren't tripping before this moment, you are now tripping. You're like, what am I seeing? I am seeing the Son of God exalted in all of his glory, and I'm seeing Moses and Elijah on both sides of Christ, and Luke tells us that they are talking about the cross. They are talking to Jesus about his upcoming exodus, his departure out of this world. And the disciples are picking this up and saying, this, this is mind-blowing. Why Moses and why Elijah? Why are Moses and Elijah on either side of Jesus? Again, I could preach an entire sermon, I think, on Moses and Elijah, but I'm going to give you like the three-minute version, Okay. Both Moses and Elijah represent some things. Moses represents the law, the law of God, right? The Old Testament law. Elijah represents the prophets. In between the summary of the Old Testament is the law and the prophets. So you have the summary characters, the summary leaders of the Old Testament. They're both there, law, prophets. Now, that's amazing because Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and and the prophets, both Moses and Elijah. Here's the other part. It gets a little more personal. Both Moses and Elijah both thought they were installing the kingdom of God during their lifetime. They both were the leaders of the people of God, and they both thought that I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I am going to bring in, I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Moses thought he was doing it through the law, And he came and he gave the law, but what did he do? Oh, what did Moses do? He hit the rock. He should have just spoke to the rock. God said, speak to the rock. What does Moses do? He hits the rock. Typical man. Amen, ladies? Typical man. Like, I'll just hit it and it'll happen. Just like it did last time. Okay, he's supposed to speak to the rock. Because of that, God said, you're not going into the promised land. Crushing. He was the leader of Israel. He was going to lead them into the promised land because he was God's man. And now he finds himself watching the nation of Israel go into the promised land without him there. And he dies alone on a mountain. 
Can you imagine how crushed Moses was as he ended his life, took his last breath? What about Elijah? Elijah thought he was going to usher in the kingdom of God by defeating all the 400 false prophets of Baal. You remember that amazing victory on Mount Carmel? Fire comes down from the sky. Elijah, he leads this victory. He's so on fire for God that he thinks that this victory is going to be the key for Israel to come back to God and the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in through me. I'm the man. He even outran a chariot to get back to Jerusalem. And once he got back to Jerusalem, he thought Jezebel, that wicked queen, she's going to bow down before me. He gets back to the city and Jezebel gives him a whammo. Right? Just a whammo. Like, I'm going to chop your head off, boy. And Elijah, so confident he was going to lead God and lead the nation of Israel into the kingdom of God, was running for the wilderness because this lady was going to chop his head off. Asked God to take him out of the world. He was so depressed. Shortly after that, he gave his ministry to Elisha. And he was carried off into heaven through a chariot of fire. He never even died. One of two people that never died in the Bible. Do you see the heartbreak of Elijah? He thought he was going to be the man. So you have two individuals, amazing biblical Old Testament leaders, and both of them are there talking to Jesus. And no doubt Jesus is telling them, guys, listen, you were not the man because I am the man. You don't get to bring in the kingdom of God because I bring in the kingdom of God. And no doubt there was power and emotion and amazing things that happened in that conversation where Elijah and Moses, no doubt, weeping tears of joy that this is what I couldn't experience. I get to see it now. Jesus woke up the spirit world through his transfiguration. And you know what? He's still doing that today. Jesus is still waking up the spirit world through his resurrection from the dead. Anytime Jesus is preached, things happen, right? You ever tried to do one thing for Jesus? What happens in your life when you try to obey Christ? Crazy things happen. You get all kinds of spiritual warfare in your life. You get hard things in your life because you know why? Because Jesus has overcome all the spirit world through his death and resurrection. And the world and Satan do not like that. They don't want you to grow. They don't want you to make progress. They don't want you to give your life to Christ. They don't want you to get saved. So every time the message that you can be saved from your sins, you can have Christ as your Savior, every time that message goes out, the spiritual world awakens. Trust me, Satan and this world, they want America to fall asleep spiritually. They want you to. They want you to drown in trivial frivolity. But when Jesus and that resurrection message come into your heart, things happen. And that spirit world wakes up. When I preach Jesus, spirit world wakes up. Things happen in the unseen realm around us. Praise God for that. The second group that wakes up, not only the spirit realm, but the disciples. The disciples wake up, verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make you three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then a bright cloud overshadows. They fall on their face. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Lord, it's good for us to be here. 
I'm going to make you three tents. Oh, Peter, 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 Peter. <laughs> Peter, what a good guy. I mean, I'm John, probably in this scenario. I'm not saying nothing. I, I'm, I'm more of the John personality. Peter is like, okay, I'll talk to you right now. I'm seeing all this crazy stuff. I'll talk. Hey, I'm going to build you something, Lord. Let's build a tent. I am so impacted by this. I want to build a tent. What in the world? Why would you say build a tent? Why build a tent? Part of the reason is because it's the Feast of Tabernacles time, right? It's that time of year with the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody builds tents. Everybody builds little tabernacles. It's part of the Jewish celebration. So no doubt, Peter is looking around saying, hey, let's just, uh, let's just do the Feast of Tabernacles right here on the mountain. Let's just do that. That's part of the answer. The other part of the answer is when humans are impacted by God in a powerful way, we like to build stuff for God. Right? We just like to build stuff for God. We like to do stuff for God. When God works in our lives, we're like, hey, God, can I build you something? Can I bring you something? Can I, can I erect something for you? Can we just do this? Um, here's a good illustration. This was from Spring Break in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Right, 65-foot Jesus. <laughs> yeah, 65-foot Jesus. All right, so we're in Eureka Springs, and we're looking to do some hiking and stuff, and then there's this sign, like, 65-foot Jesus. And we're like, what in the world? Like, oh, you girls, you want to go check it out? Let's go check it out, all right? And we go and check it out, and I'm going to be honest. Like, my face kind of gives it away. A little weird. This is a little weird. Like, you show up, like, what in the world? Are you trying to be Brazilian, or is this Rio part two? Like, what is this? And, and as you go, right, like you read the history of their little, their little um, sign, and, and there's no doubt this is from the Jesus movement in the 1960s. A bunch of hippie Jesus followers who met Jesus, loved Jesus. Let's put a big Jesus up here, 65 feet, and let's proclaim Christ to northwest Arkansas. And it's like, what on earth, you Jesus people, what are you doing well, here's part of the thing, right? It's part funny, part cool, part all, all that. It's, it's just kind of all of that, right? This is what happens when people meet Jesus. This is what happens when the grace of God touches someone's life. They build stuff. They build a big 65-foot Jesus so that everybody else can know Jesus. And they do like passion plays at this property. People get saved through it. So I'm not saying it's like, it's like totally off. I'm just saying... It's just different. It was just different. And I think that's part of what Peter is feeling. Peter is feeling this power of the resurrected Christ right in front of me. I got to build something. I got to do something. This is amazing. Three tents. Now, Peter also wants the good times to continue. This is the glory of God. This is the kingdom of God. It needs to keep going. So Jesus, how about you and Elijah and Moses? You just get your own tents. You guys be buddies here for the next few days. We'll just watch it all happen. This is amazing. We're going to watch the kingdom of God happen. No question. Peter, James, and John thought this was the beginning of the kingdom of God. They thought this, was, this is how it's all going to go. This is going to be it. Exalted Christ. Totally amazing. Old Testament saints right here. This is the beginning. We're going to get people to come from miles and miles around to see this kingdom. This is it. Now, God the Father gets involved. A bright cloud overshadowed them and a 
A voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father shows up because Peter is not stopping talking. Literally, like you can read it in Mark. He literally just starts talking because he doesn't know what else to say and he just keeps talking and talking and talking. And God the Father's like, oh, Peter, okay. I've got to show up and stop you from all this chatter. And he shows up in Peter's life and and the disciples and he says, this is my beloved son. And when the father speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks with power. He speaks with majesty. And this is where we're at. He says, Peter, look, good heart, get it? My son, you need to obey him. And my son is not on an equal playing field with Moses and Elijah. My son is greater than Moses and Elijah. Amen? This is not a buddy system, tent system. My son is the exalted son of God. And as great as Elijah is, and as great as Moses is, Jesus is greater. He's higher. He's more exalted than either of these two men. Let's not put them on the same playing field. Let's say it how it is. Jesus is the exalted son of God. Obey him. Worship him. As an application for your Christian life, for some of you, you need to just focus in on listen to him. Some of you are professing Christians and you don't listen to Jesus. You do not listen to him. You proclaim to be believers and you listen to God the Father say this and you're like, yeah, that's optional for me. I'm the exception to the rule. You're not the exception to the rule. Obey Christ. Listen to him. Also, Jesus' transfiguration, it woke up the disciples. I mean, he, he woke up the disciples to this glory, this amazing majesty. And for us as Christians today, Jesus is still waking us up today, is he not? With his power and his glory. And sometimes we fall asleep into saying, Jesus, you're kind of common, just like all these other things. And I think God would tell us this morning, Jesus is not like everybody else. Christian, he needs to be up here. Now, Jesus is the exalted son of God, which means he's not certain things. Jesus is not your buddy, okay? He's not your buddy. He's not your homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your boyfriend, Jesus is not your enabler. He's not here to enable you to do what you want to do. Jesus is not your excuse to do what you want. Jesus is the exalted son of God, and we would do really well to wake up, smell the coffee, and obey him and listen to him. That doesn't mean Jesus is not intimate and a friend. He is our friend. He is our savior. We love him. He's close to us. But he's also Lord of the universe. Let's balance those two things. The third group to wake up were ungodly men. The third and final group that Jesus woke up through his transfiguration were ungodly men. Verses 9 through 13. They're coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. Then the scribe said, well, why did the scribe say that Elijah must come first? So there's a question about Elijah. And Jesus says, Elijah does come. He'll restore all things. And then Elijah has already come. 
And they didn't recognize him, but they did whatever they pleased. So the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus is saying very clearly, I will suffer. And I'm going to suffer at the hands of the scribes and the very people that killed John, I'm going to suffer at their hands. Jesus is very clear here. He is going to live in such a way and he's going to operate in such a way that ungodly men are going to pay attention to Jesus and get jealous of him and eventually be so jealous of him, they will put him to death. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer the same way that John the Baptist did. Because Jesus knew before the crown, the cross has to come. Before there is a crown, there's a cross. Before there's exaltation, there's humiliation. Have you applied that to your life, by the way? Before you get to go to heaven, you got to go through this, this thing called life. And for all of us who are struggling and suffering under sin, which is every single one of us, we got to go through this darkness in order to get to the light. Can I get a Christian amen? I mean, that's what we got to go through. We have to go through this now because this is what it takes for us to get to glory. Our faith in Christ does not guarantee us a pain-free life. In fact, it guarantees more pain. But we have to follow Christ all the way to the end because he knew he had to suffer. Had they come down and Jesus is like, yeah, I don't care, tell the vision, tell the vision. Bad things would have happened because Peter, James, and John would have blabbed that all over town to say, hey, our, our Jesus is exalted. He is amazing. He's exalted son of God. He is the one who is going to drop all the power bombs all across the world. But Jesus said, tell no one the vision. Tell no one the vision until I resurrect from the dead. And the disciples are like, but what about Elijah? The scribes keep talking about Elijah. They keep saying Elijah's got to come first. And Jesus cannot be the Messiah unless the Elijah comes first. And there's no Elijah here. So if there's no Elijah, he can't be Messiah. No doubt that was a conversation point all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, you want to know who Elijah is? Elijah is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the spirit and person of Elijah. He's the one who is fulfilling the prophecy about Elijah. And you know what they did to John the Baptist? John the Baptist was treated with all kinds of suffering, all kinds of abuse. He was marginalized and he was ultimately killed. He got his head chopped off by Herod. And Jesus is saying, the same thing that happened to John the Baptist is going to happen to me. I will suffer underneath the authority of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Pilate, and Herod. Jesus knew that his transfiguration would waken, awaken these ungodly men. And ultimately, it would lead to the cross. How do I know that? Because as there is an illegal trial going on at 3 a.m., 3 a.m. trial. All God's people said, no thank you, right? No thank you. 3 a.m. trial. They have Jesus come up and they say, hey, just tell us who you really are. Are you the son of God? And he said, I am. And you will see the son of man coming down from heaven. And he will be exalted and you will gnash your teeth over me. And, And it was ultimately that moment, right, that Jesus said, I am God. I am absolutely God in the flesh. And they ripped all of their clothes and they said, this is blasphemy. We are jealous over this man. He has to be 
put to death. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We have no other Caesar other than Caesar. Crucify this man. The transfiguration would draw out all kinds of anger, murder from these ungodly men. So as we close, this is how it is still today. The Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're going to name the name of Jesus these days and you're going to say, I believe in the transfigured, glorified Jesus Christ who exists in heaven is going to come back again this day, people are going to look at you sideways in this culture today. More and more. Say, you follow who? What? And they will see your changed life, right? They'll see your forgiveness of sins. They'll see your joy in Jesus. They'll see your confidence that Jesus is the Son of God and they'll say, that makes no sense to me. That's the most arrogant thing I've ever seen in my life, that you believe in that man. And ungodly men will rise up still today against Jesus Christ and against you if you stand for Christ. And that is the reality of what Jesus said he would do. He would wake us up. And he would also wake up ungodly men to rise up against us. Now, even if they kill us, they can't kill us. Amen? If they kill you, you will be resurrected from the dead. Right? When Jesus returns, you will be resurrected. To to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. There is nothing they can do to you as a professing Christian that will be ultimate. The worst thing they can do is take your life. But Jesus said, fear him who controls not only this life, but also the life to come. So when Jesus comes, he he comes with a glorious transfiguration and he wakes people up. He woke up the spiritual world. He wakes up the disciples. He wakes up the ungodly people that ultimately bring him to the cross. My question is this morning, has he woken you up? Have you woken up yet? For some of you, you need to wake up and get saved. You need to see that this is, Jesus is God. And you need to be saved this morning. And for others of you who know Christ, have you woken up to the reality of who he is? Because if you have, you'll live different. You live different. So by God's grace, we're going to have some time to respond. I'm going to pray. Have some, just some quiet time to respond to the Lord. And then we'll sing and uh, close our service. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your amazing love. Jesus, thank you for this glorious transfiguration. It's an amazing moment. As you head to the cross, where you wake up the spirit world to let them know you're coming for victory. Lord, you woke up your disciples to who you are and the power that you have. And you also woke up the scribes and the Pharisees and they ultimately killed you, Jesus. So Lord, I don't know where everybody's at this morning, but I pray that you would wake up this group this morning. For Christians to wake up and recognize your glory and your power and your dominion and be thankful for your salvation. And Lord, for those who are lost without Christ, would you wake them up for the first time to repentance and faith, real faith that Jesus, you are the Son of God. Lord, speak to our hearts as we respond to you now in Jesus' name.